Hello, welcome to this very special live stream. I'm coming to you live from the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank, headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. And we think this is a very special CIO live stream because we just released our annual year ahead outlook, year ahead 2024, a new world. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And if you would like to hear more information or see more information about this after the call, you can go to ubs.com slash year ahead, or even better, talk to your client advisor. Now, to discuss the outlook for 2024 and the year beyond, we have with us yet again a cavalcade of CIO stars, Paul Donovan, Dan Scanzaroli, and uh, Kieran Ganesh. Uh, Kieran edited, uh, was the editor-in-chief of the, the whole year ahead. It's been quite a uh, monumental under, undertaking. Uh, and we want to give a special welcome today to the people who are going to be watching the public portion of our programming on LinkedIn. And in the second half, we'll go to some more uh, specific investment recommendations. But to kick us off, Paul, let's start with you. Can you walk us through the outlook for the economy over 2024 and, and what we're looking at and watching right now? Sure, Mark. Thanks very much. Um, well, 2024, we're describing as a softish landing. So what that means is there is a landing. Um, you know, softish landing does mean there is a slowdown. And we're going to slow below trend growth. But it's not going to be a really dramatic slowdown. There will be some increase in unemployment, but not a huge increase in unemployment. So why are we slowing down? Well, we've just had an awful lot of monetary policy tightening around the world. The full effects of this still have yet to work through, but what we are seeing already is a clear slowdown in credit growth, impacts on interest rate sensitive uh, sectors like real estate. So that's already happening. Uh, we've also got a certain amount of fiscal drag next year. Uh, it's not that uh, deficits are coming crashing down, but they're not likely to be increasing. And that's what matters to growth. So there's a bit of fiscal drag coming through as well. And finally, consumers don't have the same stockpile of savings, the same high savings rates that they did this time last year. And so that's also reducing their ability to go out and spend money in quite the same way that they did in 2023. However, middle income consumers in particular are doing reasonably well. Job security for those who are already in employment remains relatively high and inflation is going to continue to come down. And as that happens, real wages and therefore spending power is going to continue to improve. And that's why we get the softish landing rather than something more severe. On the inflation side, uh, we've already seen the transitory inflation episode completely end. Durable goods prices in the States have been falling for a year now. Uh, and the inflation rates for durable goods have come down dramatically in Europe too. Energy prices are more or less a neutral as far as the inflation is concerned at the moment. Obviously something we're watching with the geopolitics, but that at the moment is, is more or less a neutral. And the profit-led inflation that was a hallmark of the earlier part of this year, that's now very clearly coming under pressure. We're hearing from retailers, 
consumers just are not accepting price increases anymore. And that's pushing us into this more moderate inflation episode. And we will see further declines next year. Given that, central banks should be cutting rates. Uh, so we are still seeing central banks tighten quantitative policy. That's the bond buying, sometimes called money printing program. There, central banks keep on tightening. But interest rates, I think, they are going to bring them down because central banks do not want inflation-adjusted interest rates to be rising. So what I think is going to happen is that as we start to see uh, inflation coming down, central banks will match that with a reduction in interest rates starting in the second quarter. And I think the Bank of England will probably be first. Uh, not just because I'm British, but because the UK is a bit more interest rate sensitive. And I think they're going to move a little bit earlier. And then the ECB and the Fed will be following late second quarter or, or possibly July, but you know, around the middle of the year and two to three rate cuts from each of the major central banks. Finally, there's an awful lot of politics next year. Now, economists don't like politics because it, it messes up our nice econometric models, but we've got to be sensitive to this. An awful lot of elections taking place next year. The geopolitical issues, unfortunately, two significant wars still going on. That is something which is potentially going to throw in volatility and disruption to financial markets in this relatively benign economic scenario. All right. Thanks, Paul. And, you know, I think uh, we're really trained on the consumer and consumer spending as kind of the linchpin maybe that we can understand the best. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that we called it a softish landing. You can check. We've been doing that for a long time. I know some other folks are calling it a softish landing now. And, uh, you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Uh, but moving on. Maybe you could, uh, you know, take the energy level up a notch, Paul, and talk about your favorite band, the five Ds. So six Ds, because D for Donovan too. Um, yeah, this is uh, the the issues for the decade ahead, and for an economist, the next decade is just going to be absolutely exciting. I mean, this is just a really, really dramatic period of change. Um, and there's five items that we've identified that we think should really be on investors' radar screens for the next 10 years. So the first of these is deglobalization. Now, global trade is already coming down as a share of GDP, and I think that that will continue over the next few years. Uh, now, what we've really got here are two forces working to lower global trade. The first of these is, is sort of formal deglobalization, politicians interfering tariffs, embargoes, you know, all that sort of stuff, which is creating a less efficient global trading environment. But we also have localization, where companies are choosing to use technology to locate closer to their customer base, capital for labor substitution, effectively. And with that, they're also reducing global trade by simplifying global supply chains. And that's actually an efficiency gain that's quite different to the deglobalization story. We've also got demographics. None of us are getting any younger. And the aging populations are creating lots of very interesting shifts. People are changing how they work. What happens with retirement? How do we cope with things like healthcare? You know, these are all very, very important questions. Things like increased volunteering. People may be retiring, but then going back to work in different ways. All sorts of disruptions coming through there. Really, really interesting developments. 
digitization. Obviously, artificial intelligence is in the news today, but there's a lot of other things going on, straightforward digitization, uh, things like streaming, social media, uh, we have you know, increased robotics automation. All of this is, is changing the structures and the economic costs of manufacture, of services, really, really interesting developments there, widespread implications, including, of course, things like real estate being affected. Decarbonization, unfortunately, the climate crisis is not going away. Uh, we're seeing that very clearly. More and more climate change is disrupting the economy, disrupting agricultural prices, leisure, tourism, insurance, all sorts of issues coming out of this. Decarbonization is very firmly uh, on the agenda over the medium term. And then finally, debt. We've seen an increase in government debt levels in particular in response to the pandemic, in response to the financial crisis uh, of 2007, 2008 as well. So where do we go with debt in the future? How do we manage this? Now, personally, I think that government is likely to play a larger role in the economy in the next 10 years than in the last 10 years, which implies a higher debt ratio than we've been used to. But how high? And can we make sure that it is sustainable? And that's going to be, I think, a really important question for investors over the next decade. So lots of really exciting trends coming on. Great time to be an economist, frankly, Mark. Well, you know, one thing I've learned from you, Paul, is that you make it clear that it's always a good time to be an economist. But I think you're right. This is really exciting. We're excited about this part of the decade ahead and these and these trends, which, you know, are really changing the, wor the world that uh, we're living in. I think this is going to conclude the public portion of our programming, and we're going to get into a little deeper content now uh, in the private part. All right, so let's shift gears. And, you know, if Paul uh, spun us around the compass with the five Ds, uh, Dan is going to help us find a plan to navigate both the year ahead and start thinking about this decade ahead. So Dan, help us, you know, you've got tons of experience talking to clients about coming up with a plan. So share some of the wisdom with us. As it relates to the year ahead and the decade ahead, right now we're sitting in an interesting situation where we have a combination of economic uncertainty that Paul mentioned. We have geopolitical instability and we have high cash yields. And this can increase the perceived safety of holding cash because of that uncertainty. However, we expect policy tightening and rates to fall from levels that they're currently at, which are at levels that haven't been seen in over 15 years. And this will reduce the return on cash. It will also reduce its futures purchasing power in an elevated inflationary environment, and it increases your reinvestment risk. When constructed thoughtfully, though, a liquidity strategy can help you navigate a potential market drawdown by, by providing for spending needs that you anticipate over the next three to five years while keeping longer term assets invested for growth. To benefit from the current yield environment for years to come, we believe investors should limit overall cash balances by holding less than a year of spending needs in fixed term deposits and invest, investing the anticipated spending needs that you're going to have for the next three years in a high quality bond ladder program that aligns the maturity of each bond to the timing of your capital needs. This institutional approach is known as liability matching and it mitigates reinvestment risk by locking in rates where they currently are at the current levels of carry for years to come until those bonds systematically mature at par and provide you with the capital 
at the time in which you are going to need it for spending each year and each out. It also potentially combats inflation as inflation tends towards those central bank targets of two and two and a half percent. Um, to further balance the opportunity costs of potential stock market rallies, though, investors can look to use structured solutions with capital preservation features for longer dated capital needs. A moderate equity volatility coupled with high interest rates have improved pricing on these types of strategies, but it also comes with the trade-off of complexity, a limited secondary market if you want to unwind those strategies, and counterparty risks. In addition to thoughtfully structuring your liquidity strategy to lock in rates before they fall, we see good opportunities to put money to work in a diversified portfolio of equities, bonds, and alternatives. To right-size this portfolio, we, re we recommend working with your financial advisor to evaluate the resources that you will need for your lifetime to meet your financial goals and placing those assets in a longevity strategy portfolio that is positioned for long-term growth that aligns with your overall risk tolerance. After the rally that we've had in equities and the fall in bonds this year, many longevity strategy portfolios have drifted and should be brought back in balance to maintain risk and diversification. Lastly, with the market run this year, investors may find that they have additional excess assets relative to those lifetime needs that they're placing in their longevity strategy. And this can be used for the benefit of others to enhance the legacy that you leave behind. The multi-generational nature of a legacy strategy typically has the patience of capital to maximize growth potential with higher levels of alternatives like private equity, since this capital typically doesn't any, have any rigid liquidity constraints. So positioning and evaluating those three L's, liquidity, longevity, and legacy is critical in order to make sure that you're achieving your goals and staying invested to capture the growth that's coming in the year and decade ahead. All right. Thanks, Dan. So what I heard was that bad news, cash rates are unlikely to stay this high, but the good news is this is a great time to finally uh, start working on that New Year's resolution you've had for many years, which is to actually come up with a portfolio that has you know, asset allocation balance, and this is a great time to work on that. Um, all right. Now, moving along, Kieran, it would be super if you could pick you know, a curated list of artisanally crafted ideas from the year ahead that you want to share with this group. Sure, thanks, Mark. So we've seen the five Ds and the three Ls. I'm going to give the, the big Q now, which is quality. And that's a big focus that we have um, for this year's year ahead. We heard it before from Paul that we are going to see slower economic growth. We still have relatively high interest rates. What's that going to mean? Well, it's going to be harder for a lot of companies to be growing their top lines, and you're going to see some refinancing pressures. Where do you want to be in the equity market when that's happening? You want to be in quality. Companies with robust balance sheets, a track record of growing earnings in a variety of different conditions, and high returns on capital. That sounds great in concept. Where can you find those in reality? When you look at some of the highest returning parts um, of the uh, equity market, as you can see on the previous slide, uh, they are in technology, in energy, and in healthcare. And conveniently enough, these are both quality, well positioned for 2024, but also for the longer term, because these are the sectors where we're expecting to see some of the strongest potential for earnings growth as these companies are getting involved in disruption over the course of the next decade. 
In technology, in the decade ahead, we look at artificial intelligence and everything that's happening there. And we see diverse opportunities across the value chain, everything from cloud through to semiconductors, through to software and internet companies. And it's actually many of the same companies that are positioned across the value chain. We could even see the big getting bigger as a result of this trend. Then we look at the energy uh, transition and decarbonization, really very complex over the course of the next decade. Paul talked about that, but that should create lots of good opportunities for companies, everything from renewables to energy story, storage to energy efficiency, grid optimization, a whole range of opportunities that emerge for companies to grow market share, grow profits through this decarbonization transition. And then on healthcare, obesity has been a huge trend over the course of the past year. Uh, lots of uh, interest in that uh, segment and the innovation happening in that space. The healthcare opportunity is much broader, and we didn't see such strong performance from areas like medtech, genetic therapies, and we think that those are areas of interest over the course of the next um, decade. So the theme of quality and picking leaders from disruption is really an important one uh, for us within the equity space. Now, moving along to um, fixed income, um, that theme of quality extends, and uh, we, we like to buy quality bonds in addition. Uh, we know that yields are relatively elevated. We think that they're pricing in rates staying higher for longer, and we think that in reality, when central banks start to cut interest rates, those bonds will start to price in lower rates from there. So that means if you're owning those bonds, you're earning a healthy yield and capital depreciation, and they can act as a portfolio hedge if you've got that balanced portfolio because slower economic growth may be more negative for equities, but should be more positive for bonds. And those high yields also give you nice insulation. If you look at the US five-year today, that would have to be trading above 5.5% by the end of next year in order to earn a negative return on that bond. So high starting yields give good insulation for investors who are looking to buy into quality bonds. Currencies and commodities um, on, the, uh, on the next page. So for the dollar, we're looking for broadly range bound over the next few months. It's quite overvalued on the one hand side, um, but also the US currently has higher interest rates and a stronger macro picture than much of the rest of the world. So we think the dollar will stay in that overvalued territory over the course of the next few months, perhaps before weakening later in the year when US growth slows and when US interest rates come down. So we like strategies that are really playing the range in the dollar, potentially selling away some strength, um, or playing the range in some of the European currencies where there's very similar economic backdrops. We don't see particularly strong trends uh, emerging uh, in, the, in the currency space. And then final piece just to highlight, uh, as you can see on the next slide, um, is uh, hedging market risks. Um, Paul talks about political risk and how markets often struggle to price that in. We have got a lot of that on the horizon for 2024. And um, the good news is that it is an interesting time to look at hedging strategies um, today because we've got a nice combination of relatively low implied volatility and relatively high bond yield. And a lot of strategies that allow investors to hedge their positions combine buying a bond and buying an option. So if you've got low bond prices and low option prices, and makes this a relatively attractive time to look at some of those strategies that can allow you to participate in upside, but protect against the downside. Again, equities falling is not our base case, but in a year of volatility, this is an interesting thing to um, think about. In the commodity space, gold can also be an interesting hedge. We're looking for 2150 um, by the end of uh, 2024, currently somewhat constrained, uh, we think, by the elevated US interest rates, but when they start to come down, then that price could be realized. 
And a final point to highlight in terms of hedging strategies, we would say that macro hedge funds in the context of a well-diversified portfolio can play a role in hedging portfolios. And historically, they've consistently delivered uh, positive performance even during some periods of uh, equity market uh, downturn. So there are plenty to focus on. I'd say quality is really the theme that runs through um, our year ahead, both in equities and in bonds. But we also see plenty of opportunity uh, in currencies, uh, commodities as well. All right. Thanks, Karen. And, you know, one important topic that we haven't covered yet, both because it's so important to an asset allocation, but also because it's really an opportunity for 2024 is alternatives. And, you know, we've we've heard some noise about things that may be in alternative portfolios and valuations. You know, this is this news has been going on for years now. Um but th that's the past. That's separate from if you put new work, new money to work today, maybe that yields some opportunities. And I'm hoping, Dan, you can say something about that. Yes, Mark. Um, you know, as it relates to positioning for the year ahead, you know, we do see opportunities in alternative credit strategies. You know, elevated rates and that slowing economy that we're expecting is likely to put pressure on companies' ability to refinance. And this could lead to higher dispersion between issuers and wider credit spreads. You know, which creates a supportive backdrop for credit arbitrage funds to capture relative mispricing between securities. This dynamic should also create opportunities for distressed and special situations funds to provide capital to companies that struggle to cover, cover the interest costs in a higher for longer environment that is, that, that is coming down. You know, looking to the uh, decade ahead, we see opportunities in private equity, private credit, and even in private infrastructure. With high levels of government debt, public funding for innovation is likely to be constrained, and private managers have the opportunity to provide equity and debt capital to fund innovation, particularly in those focus areas that, that were discussed before on technology, energy, and healthcare. You know, and this provides investors with one of the few ways to access value being created by fast-growing and disruptive companies. This year, We've seen markdowns in private equity and we've seen a rebasing of valuations. Um, and that has improved entry points. The prospect for higher costs of debt shifts our focus away from highly leveraged buyout deals towards middle market value oriented buyouts who have robust cash flows to weather an economic slowdown while the general partners work with those portfolio companies to target multiple expansion through operational improvements cost revenue optimization, and even synergies. Now, lastly, we also continue to see value in private credit strategies, despite expectations of slower growth and rates settling higher than before COVID. While these dynamics could put pressure on debt servicing and increase potential credit losses, a fall in rates could also provide an offset to defaulting risk. Um, as bank lending has tightened this year, disciplined private lenders have been able to negotiate stronger protections in this area with lower leverage and more equity behind their loans. These loans are also typically top of the capital stack, which increases recovery rates relative to subordinated debt. They currently offer a floating rate yield close to 12% on an unlevered basis, which is an attractive pickup relative to high yield and lev loans and provide considerable compensation for any potential credit losses. So as investors consider adding alternatives to their portfolios, they should consider the risks from long lockout periods to leverage, say liquidity, and even defaults. But for those who can tolerate and trade off those risks, 
um, in their portfolio, we would expect a 20% allocation to alternatives to potentially enhance returns by a half a percent to three quarters of a percent a year um, and reduce volatility by about a half a percent a year, thus creating a more diversified and efficient asset allocation to compound wealth more quickly and smoothly along the ride. All right. Thank you, Dan. Now is my favorite part of the broadcast where we endeavor to answer questions. And uh, we've got a lot of them here. I'm going to throw out a couple. Uh, one is about the maturity wall I assume, uh, and corporate earnings. I assume that mostly ties into the United States. Uh, and then we've got a couple of geopolitical questions. Maybe I'll take those. And then we have a question about how UBS is uh, managing AI internally, since it's an investment call and everybody knows that, we're not gonna cover that one. Uh, but on the geopolitics, I think we've had several events, obviously the ongoing is Israel, Hamas, more and war and the implications for global markets, you know, uh, and then of course we've had the US-China uh, summit. I think that uh, one, of the, one of the things, and I think we've covered it a bit is, we're really watching the the main transmission mechanism uh, for the current stage of the conflict has been through oil prices, and you know the markets are never good at at pricing risk, so that's a caveat. But I think the markets have gained a bit of confidence that the conflict seems to be relatively contained. It is not going to bring the region into a wider war, and we certainly all hope that that. Uh, outlook remains stable, and then on the you know on the the uh, summit that took place in <clears throat> in the United States and the the meeting, I think that you know it reduced the tensions uh, around kind of armed conflict around uh, things like uh, the the South China Sea. Although that's that's really you know speculation to to a degree. I I don't think that there was, uh, you know, a lot of uh, real breakthroughs on some of the the larger concerns about that Paul talked about, which is the reasons why deglobalization is happening, the reasons why nearshoring is happening. Um, so, you know, I, I, we didn't see a lot of major breakthroughs there. Does somebody want to talk about the the debt maturities? Yeah, sure, I can I can take up on um, I think there's a couple of things to, to highlight. So you know, the, the first is it's not quite a maturity wall. I mean, we've got actually the slide up um, right here on the on the right. So it's more of a more of a slope. It is a steep slope. Um, but it's not as though every single company is gonna have to be refinancing their debt uh, next year. So the impact is more staged than a big one-off negative impact. When we look at you know what is the aggregate impact, um, it's actually relatively minor for the for the S and P 500. I know we've looked at this um, before, and you're looking at more like in the one to two percentage point um, off earnings growth. But there are plenty of offsetting factors, and we're still looking for uh, high single-digit earnings growth um, for the S and P 500 uh, for 2024, around about nine percent, even accounting for some of that refinancing. And I think the final point to make, and it comes back to what I was saying before about quality is clearly the earnings impact is quite differentiated by sector. So if you look at some of the lowly leveraged sectors, so things like healthcare, like energy, like IT, with net debt to EBITDA of two times or less, or even 0.5 times in the case of IT, 
they should be relatively less affected by refinancing. Whereas if you've, of course, got other sectors, things like real estate, utilities, where perhaps they're trading on five times net debt to EBITDA, then clearly that's a bit more of a, of a challenge. Um, so we'd say it's no, no cause for panic at the uh, index level at all, and it'll be more than offset um, by underlying um, earnings growth. Um, but the concerns about the maturity will um, really reinforce our view that quality um, is the place to be for the year ahead, uh, including sectors like uh, IT. All right, and I'm going to try to whip through a little bit on questions around AI and AI tech companies. And, you know, is are, are big tech companies going to get bigger uh, and you know, are these trends support supporting that or you know, AI trends supporting that, you know, to Karen's point and, and to the other remarks made, I mean, in a falling rate environment, uh, we think, and, and still positive growth, you know, we think that lots of equities can potentially do well, whether at the index level or, um, you know, below the index level, but there is this interesting point about AI, which we talk about it in the year ahead, which is that these very large companies, um, because they can both, because they own so much of the value chain, they may actually benefit more from AI uh, than than other firms. Because you know, one of the things you need to train large language models is a lot of data, and of course, large companies have a lot of data. So that's one of the interesting developments and in, and things that could make this evolution around AI very different than some of the evolutions in the past. And then I think we have an interesting question uh, on how all these forces like AI or the high levels of debt are going to play out in terms of the inflation deflation dynamics uh, that we face in the years ahead. And I think this is something that you know we think about a lot. Uh, I, th I think that there's going to be volatility as these different narratives come forward. You know, the, the one example is around the, the debt issue. And, and I often get asked, you know, which, which country has the biggest problem with debt? And, you know, you could say, well, the United States has a lot of debt, but the United States has a way of making their problems other people's problems historically. Uh, that's one thing. And then you have a nation like Germany, which maybe doesn't have the same level of debt, uh, but because they're very concerned about it in the past, they've done things like cut spending uh, more severely, and that's hurt their stock market maybe compare, because it cut into growth more severely. And so I think these these issues around debt or uh, inflation and, and you know how we get out of date debt because inflation is typically one of the ways we get out of debt. And then these other deflationary forces, demographics or AI, these, these narratives are going to change over time. And that's, again, it speaks to the importance of a balanced portfolio. And maybe some tre trends uh, arise that you can play on a more tactical basis, and we're on the lookout for that. Um, but I don't, we're not going to have an answer to this, certainly in the year ahead, although we may get one in the decade ahead. I think we're out of time. And I want to thank everybody for joining us. Please make it a great day.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.